Chapter 24 of Democracy in Education An Introduction to the Philosophy of Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Florence Short. Democracy and Education by John Dewey. Chapter 24. Chapter 24 Philosophy of Education. 1. A Critical Review. Although we are dealing with a philosophy of education, no definition of philosophy has yet been given, nor has there been an explicit consideration of the nature of a philosophy of education. This topic is now introduced by a summary account of the logical order implied in the previous discussions, for the purpose of bringing out the philosophic issues involved. Afterwards, we shall undertake a brief discussion, in more specifically philosophical terms, of the theories of knowledge and of morals implied in different educational ideals as they operate in practice. The prior chapters fall logically into three parts. 1. The first chapters deal with education as a social need and function. Their purpose is to outline the general features of education as the process by which social groups maintain their continuous existence. Education was shown to be a process of renewal of the meanings of experience through a process of transmission, partly incidental to the ordinary companionship or intercourse of adults and youth, partly deliberately instituted to affect social continuity. This process was seen to involve control and growth of both the immature individual and the group in which he lives. This consideration was formal in that it took no specific account of the quality of the social group concerned, the kind of society aiming at its own perpetuation through education. The general discussion was then specified by application to social groups which are intentionally progressive and which aim at a greater variety of mutually shared interests in distinction from those which aim simply at the preservation of established customs. Such societies were found to be democratic in quality because of the greater freedom allowed the constituent members and the conscious need of securing in individuals a consciously socialized interest. Instead of trusting mainly to the force of customs operating under the control of a superior class, the sort of education appropriate to the development of a democratic community was then explicitly taken as the criterion of the further, more detailed analysis of education. 2. This analysis, based upon the democratic criterion, was seen to imply the ideal of a continuous reconstruction or reorganizing of experience of such a nature as to increase its recognized meaning or social content, and as to increase the capacity of individuals to act as directive guardians of this reorganization. See chapters 6 through 8. This distinction was then used to outline the respective characters of subject matter and method, it also defined their unity, since method in study and learning upon this basis is just the consciously directed movement of reorganization of the subject matter of experience. From this point of view, the main principles of method and subject matter of learning were developed. Chapters 13 through 15. 3. Save for incidental criticisms designed to illustrate principles by force of contrast, this phase of the discussion took for granted the democratic criterion and its application in present social life. In the subsequent chapters, 18 through 22, we considered the present limitation of its actual realization, 
they were found to spring from the notion that experience consists of a variety of segregated domains or interests each having its own independent value material and method each checking each other and when each is kept properly bounded by the others forming a kind of balance of powers in education we then proceeded to an analysis of the various assumptions underlining the segregation on the practical side they were found to have their cause in the divisions of society into more or less rigidly marked off classes and groups in other words in obstruction to full and flexible social interaction and intercourse these social ruptures of continuity were seen to have their intellectual formulation in various dualisms or antitheses such as that of labor and leisure practical and intellectual activity man and nature individuality and association culture and vocation in this discussion we found that these different issues have their counterparts in formulations which have been made in classic philosophic systems and that they involve the chief problems of philosophy such as mind or spirit and matter body and mind the mind and the world the individual and his relationships to others etc underlining these various separations we found the fundamental assumption to be an isolation of mind from activity involving physical conditions bodily organs material appliances and natural objects consequently there was indicated a philosophy which recognizes the origin place and function of mind in an activity which controls the environment thus we have completed the circuit and returned to the conceptions of the first portion of this book such as the biological continuity of human impulses and instincts with natural energies the dependence of the growth of mind upon participation in conjoint activities having a common purpose the influence of the physical environment through the uses made of it in the social medium the necessity of utilization of individual variations in desire and thinking for a progressively developing society the essential unity of method and subject matter the intrinsic continuity of ends and means the recognition of mind as thinking which perceives and tests the meanings of behavior these conceptions are consistent with the philosophy which sees intelligence to be the purpose of reorganization through action of the material of experience and they are inconsistent with each of the dualistic philosophies mentioned two the nature of philosophy our further task is to extract and make explicit the idea of philosophy implicit in these considerations we have already virtually described though not defined philosophy in terms of the problems with which it deals and that thing nor even to the aggregate of known things but to the considerations which govern conduct hence philosophy cannot be defined simply from the side of subject matter for this reason the definition of such conceptions as generality totality and ultimateness is most readily reached from the side of the disposition toward the world which they connote in any literal and quantitative sense these terms do not apply to the subject matter of knowledge for completeness and finality are out of the question the very nature of experience as an ongoing changing process forbids in a less rigid sense they apply to science rather than to philosophy 
for obviously it is to mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, anthropology, history, etc., that we must go, not to philosophy, to find out the facts of the world. It is for the sciences to say what generalizations are tenable about the world and what they specifically are. But when we ask what sort of permanent disposition of action toward the world the scientific disclosures exact of us, we are raising a philosophic question. From this point of view, totality does not mean the hopeless task of a quantitative summation. It means rather consistency of mode of response in reference to the plurality of events which occur. Consistency does not mean literal identity, for since the same thing does not happen twice, an exact repetition of a reaction involves some maladjustment. Totality means continuity, the carrying on of a former habit of action with the readaptation necessary to keep it alive and growing. Instead of signifying a ready-made complete scheme of action, it means keeping the balance in a multitude of diverse actions so that each borrows and gives significance to every other. Any person who is open-minded and sensitive to new perceptions and who has concentration and responsibility in connecting them has, insofar, a philosophic disposition. One of the popular senses of philosophy is calm and endurance in the face of difficulty and loss. It is even supposed to be a power to bear pain without complaint. This meaning is a tribute to the influence of the Stoic philosophy rather than an attribute of philosophy in general. But insofar as it suggests that the wholeness characteristic of philosophy is a power to learn or to extract meaning from even the unpleasant vicissitudes of experience and to embody what is learned in an ability to go on learning, it is justified in any scheme. An analogous interpretation applies to the generality and ultimateness of philosophy. Taken literally, they are absurd pretensions. They indicate insanity. Finality does not mean, however, that experience is ended and exhausted, but means the disposition to penetrate to deeper levels of meaning, to go below the surface and find out the connections of any event or object, and to keep at it. In like manner, the philosophic attitude is general in the sense that it is averse to taking anything as isolated. It tries to place an act in its context, which constitutes its significance. It is of assistance to connect philosophy with thinking in its distinction from knowledge. Knowledge, grounded knowledge, is science. It represents objects which have been settled, ordered, disposed of rationally. Thinking, on the other hand, is perspective and reference. It is occasioned by an unsettlement, and it aims at overcoming a disturbance. Philosophy is thinking what the known demands of us, what responsive attitude it exacts. It is an idea of what is possible, not a record of accomplished fact. Hence it is hypothetical, like all thinking. It presents an assignment of something to be done, something to be tried. Its value lies not in furnishing solutions, which can be achieved only in action, but in defining difficulties and suggesting methods for dealing with them. Philosophy might almost be described as thinking which has become conscious of itself which has generalized its place, function, and value in experience. More specifically, the demand for a total attitude arises because there is the need of integration and action of the conflicting various interests in life, where interests are so superficial that they glide readily into one another, or where they are not sufficiently organized to come into conflict with one another, the need for philosophy is not perceptible. But when the scientific interest conflicts with, say, the religious, 
or the economic with the scientific or aesthetic or when the conservative concern for order is at odds with the progressive interest in freedom or when institutionalism clashes with individuality there is a stimulus to discover some more comprehensive point of view from which the divergencies may be brought together and consistency or continuity of experience recovered often these clashes may be settled by an individual for himself the area of the struggle of aims is limited and a person works out his own rough accommodations such homespun philosophies are genuine and often adequate but they do not result in systems of philosophy these arise when the discrepant claims of different ideals of conduct affect the community as a whole and the need for readjustment is general these traits explain some things which are often brought as objections against philosophies such as the part played in them by individual speculation and their controversial diversity as well as the fact that philosophy seems to be repeatedly occupied with much the same questions differently stated without doubt all these things characterize historic philosophies more or less but they are not objections to philosophy so much as they are to human nature and even to the world in which human nature is set if there are genuine uncertainties in life philosophies must reflect that uncertainty if there are different diagnoses of the cause of a difficulty and different proposals for dealing with it if that is the conflict of interests is more or less embodied in different sets of persons there must be divergent competing philosophies with respect to what has happened sufficient evidence is all that is needed to bring agreement and certainty the thing itself is sure but with reference to what it is wise to do in a complicated situation discussion is inevitable precisely because the thing itself is still indeterminate one would not expect a ruling class living at ease to have the same philosophy of life as those who are having a hard struggle for existence if the possessing and the dispossessed had the same fundamental disposition toward the world it would argue either insincerity or lack of seriousness a community devoted to industrial pursuits active in business and commerce is not likely to see the needs and possibilities of life in the same way as a country with high aesthetic culture and little enterprise in turning the energies of nature to mechanical account a social group with a fairly continuous history will respond mentally to a crisis in a very different way from one which has felt the shock of abrupt breaks even if the same data were present they would be evaluated differently but the different sorts of experience attending different types of life prevent just the same data from presenting themselves as well as lead to a different scheme of values as for the similarity of problems this is often more a matter of appearance than a fact due to the old discussions being translated into the terms of contemporary perplexities but in certain fundamental respects the same predicaments of life recur from time to time with only such changes as are due to change of social contexts including the growth of sciences the fact that philosophic problems arise because of widespread and widely felt difficulties in social practice is disguised because philosophers become a specialized class which uses a technical language unlike the vocabulary in which the direct difficulties are stated but where a system becomes influential its connection with a conflict of interests calling for some program of social adjustment may always be discovered at this point the intimate connection between philosophy and education appears 
in fact education offers a vantage ground from which to penetrate to the human as distinct from the technical significance of philosophic discussions the student of philosophy in itself is always in danger of taking it as so much nimble or severe intellectual exercise as something said by philosophers in concerning them alone but when philosophic issues are approached from the side of the kind of mental disposition to which they correspond or the differences in educational practice they make when acted upon the life situations which they formulate can never be far from view if a theory makes no difference in educational endeavor it must be artificial the educational point of view enables one to envisage the philosophic problems where they arise and thrive where they are at home and where acceptance or rejection makes a difference in practice if we are willing to conceive education as the process of forming fundamental dispositions intellectual and emotional toward nature and fellow men philosophy may even be defined as the general theory of education unless a philosophy is to remain symbolic or verbal or a sentimental indulgence for a few or else mere arbitrary dogma its auditing of past experience and its program of values must take effect in conduct public agitation propaganda legislative and administrative action are effective in producing the change of disposition which a philosophy indicates is desirable but only in the degree in which they are educative that is to say in the degree in which they modify mental and moral attitudes and at the best such methods are compromised by the fact that they are used with those whose habits are already largely set while education of youth has a fairer and freer field of operation on the other side the business of schooling tends to become a routine empirical affair unless its aims and methods are animated by such a broad and sympathetic survey of its place in contemporary life as it is the business of philosophy to provide positive science always implies practically the ends which the community is concerned to achieve isolated from such ends it is matter of indifference whether its disclosures are used to cure disease or to spread it to increase the means of sustenance of life or to manufacture war material to wipe life out if society is interested in one of these things rather than another science shows the way of attainment philosophy thus has a double task that of criticizing existing aims with respect to the existing state of science pointing out values which have become obsolete with the command of new resources showing what values are merely sentimental because there are no means for their realization and also that of interpreting the results of specialized science in their bearing on future social endeavor it is impossible that it should have any success in these tasks without educational equivalence as to what to do and what not to do for philosophic theory has no aladdin's lamp to summon into immediate existence the values which it intellectually constructs in the mechanical arts the science has become methods of managing things so as to utilize their energies for recognized aims by the educative arts philosophy may generate methods of utilizing the energies of human beings in accord with serious and thoughtful conceptions of life education is the laboratory in which philosophic distinctions become concrete and are tested it is suggestive that european philosophy originated among the athenians under the direct pressure of educational questions 
The earlier history of philosophy, developed by the Greeks in Asia Minor and Italy, so far as its range of topics is concerned, is mainly a chapter in the history of science rather than philosophy, as that word is understood today. It had nature for its subject and speculated as to how things are made and changed. Later, the traveling teachers, known as the sophists, began to apply the results and methods of the natural philosophers to human conduct. When the sophists, the first body of professional educators in Europe, instructed the youth in virtue, the political arts, and the management of city and household, philosophy began to deal with the relation of the individual to the universal, to some comprehensive class or to some group, the relation of man and nature, of tradition and reflection, of knowledge and action. Can virtue, approved excellence in any line, be learned, they asked? What is learning? It has to do with knowledge. What then is knowledge? How is it achieved? Through the senses, or by apprenticeship in some form of doing, or by reason that has undergone a preliminary logical discipline. Since learning is coming to know, it involves a passage from ignorance to wisdom, from privation to fullness, from defect to perfection, from non-being to being, in the Greek way of putting it. How is such a transition possible? Is change, becoming, development really possible, and if so, how? And supposing such questions answered, what is the relation of instruction, of knowledge, to virtue? This last question led to opening the problem of the relation of reason to action, of theory to practice, since virtue clearly dwelt in action. Was not knowing the activity of reason the noblest attribute of man? And consequently, was not purely intellectual activity itself the highest of all excellences, compared with which the virtues of neighborliness and the citizen's life were secondary? Or, on the other hand, was the vaunted intellectual knowledge more than empty and vain pretense, demoralizing to character and destructive of the social ties that bound men together in their community life, was not the only true, because the only moral, life gained through obedient habituation to the customary practices of the community? And was not the new education an enemy to good citizenship, because it set up a rival standard to the established traditions of the community? In the course of two or three generations, such questions were cut loose from their original practical bearing upon education and were discussed on their own account. That is, as matters of philosophy as an independent branch of inquiry. But the fact that the stream of European philosophical thought arose as a theory of educational procedure remains an eloquent witness to the intimate connection of philosophy and education. Philosophy of education is not an external application of ready-made ideas to a system of practice having a radically different origin and purpose. It is only an explicit formulation of the problems of the formation of right mental and moral habitudes in respect to the difficulties of contemporary social life. The most penetrating definition of philosophy which can be given is, then, that it is the theory of education in its most general phases. The reconstruction of philosophy, of education, and of social ideals and methods thus go hand in hand. If there is a special need of educational reconstruction at the present time, if this need makes urgent a reconsideration of the basic ideas of traditional philosophic systems, it is because of the thoroughgoing change in social life accompanying the advance of science, the Industrial Revolution, and the development of democracy. 
Such practical changes cannot take place without demanding an educational reformation to meet them, and without leading men to ask what ideas and ideals are implicit in these social changes, and what revisions they require of the ideas and ideals which are inherited from older and unlike cultures. Incidentally, throughout the whole book, explicitly in the last few chapters, we have been dealing with just these questions as they affect the relationship of mind and body, theory and practice, man and nature, the individual and social, etc. In our concluding chapters, we shall sum up the prior discussions with respect first to the philosophy of knowledge and then to the philosophy of morals. Summary after a review designed to bring out the philosophic issues implicit in the previous discussions, philosophy was defined as the generalized theory of education. Philosophy was stated to be a form of thinking, which, like all thinking, finds its origin in what is uncertain in the subject matter of experience, which aims to locate the nature of the perplexity and to frame hypotheses for its clearing up to be tested in action. Philosophic thinking has for its differentia the fact that the uncertainties with which it deals are found in widespread social conditions and aims, consisting in a conflict of organized interests and institutional claims. Since the only way of bringing about a harmonious readjustment of the opposed tendencies is through a modification of emotional and intellectual disposition, philosophy is at once an explicit formulation of the various interests of life and a propounding of points of view and methods through which a better balance of interests may be effected. Since education is the process through which the needed transformation may be accomplished and not remain a mere hypothesis as to what is desirable, we reach a justification of the statement that philosophy is the theory of education as a deliberately conducted practice. End of chapter 24